This is Silver Star Bible School, 1987, August 10th, Session 3. Our speaker is Brother Colin Badger. His general theme is, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And the title of this class is, Righteousness belongeth unto thee, O Yahweh. The reading is Daniel Chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Brothers and sisters, I'd like to introduce our analysis of this next prayer by Daniel in chapter 9 by the following quotation from a very well-known and experienced brother. A man's response to the needs of the community, of the body to which he has supposedly given allegiance, is often a measure of the true character of the man himself. Self-seeking and disregard for the lasting well-being of the community weakens the bonds which are intended to be channels of strength rather than strife. Our attitude to the body is our attitude to Christ. The ecclesia is his body. If we are superior to it, we lack humility. If we are divisive within it, we deny the atonement by which we have and were reconciled and made one. If we neglect it, the body, we diminish our affection for him. If we serve it, we do him service. If we edify it, we continue his work. If we bind up its wounds and take care of the weak, we fellowship his sufferings. That is the perspective of Daniel chapter 9. Those are the principles, in part, which permeate the attitude and govern the content of Daniel chapter 9 as this wise man, this godly man, pours out his heart before Yahweh, God of Israel. Daniel, you see, brothers and sisters, understood the doctrine of the one body, just as well as it has been articulated by a brother in the 20th century. It was a doctrine to which Daniel gave more than just academic assent. For as you analyze the contents of his outpouring in Daniel chapter 9, you can see how he grasped the doctrine of the one body just as well as it it is expressed in many of the New Testament epistles and how so much of what he says is predicated upon Daniel's belief and his understanding and his application of the doctrine of the one body. Daniel chapter 9, let's turn there, brothers and sisters, and analyze... The problem, first of all, that was before Daniel, for which he prayed. Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. There we have spelled out very clearly before us what was before Daniel. He was in Babylon with his people and he was agonizing over the captivity of his people. He yearned with all his heart to go back to Jerusalem, to return to the land of promise. And he agonized to know, according to the prophecies that had gone before him, he agonized to know how long, O Lord, to use that expression in Revelation from the souls under the altar, how long, O Lord, You see, for Daniel, the subject of Bible prophecy was not something that had 
simply a cursory interest for him. The subject of Bible prophecy was an integral part of Daniel's Bible study. He viewed Bible prophecy seriously. In fact, he viewed it so seriously that he agonized to understand it, and he applied himself to it, and he prayed about it. And it wasn't just the matter of the what and the who of Bible prophecy. You notice in verse 2, he was concerned about the when of Bible prophecy. And of those three, the what, the who, and the when, today in Christadelphian circles, of those three, the one that is often stressed as being least important, one that is regarded, talked about, and viewed indirectly even, as being of only cursory concern is the when. Bible prophecy in terms of chronology in times and seasons have for some time lost the kind of urgent interest they once held in our community. That's a fact. We have to admit it. It's obvious in many, many ways as we look out in our own community. Many are saying that until certain events are fulfilled, we do well not to spend much time on the chronology of Bible prophecy. That was not the perspective of Daniel. That is not the example Daniel sets for us. His prayer betrays, brothers and sisters, a contrary view. He wanted to know, on the basis of the writings of Jeremiah, who had gone before him, where he was in time in relationship to the 70-year captivity. And to seek an answer to that, despite the fact that he was a Holy Spirit-gifted man, despite those privileges, he still had to do his Bible study. And study he did. But we notice he didn't only study. He prayed about it. Verse 3 again. Look at the words that stress the attitude of Daniel as he approaches this important subject to him. Prayer, supplication, fasting, sackcloth and ashes. He prostrated himself before the books and before his father in prayer and in study. Prayerfully and carefully, he agonized to know and understand the words of these secrets. Verse 4, he begins a much larger prayer that broadens out into a much larger concern than just knowing where he was in time. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces, as at this day, to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel that are near and that are far off through all the countries whither thou hast driven them because of their trespass that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings and to our princes and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against him. Only the introduction of a very long but very powerful prayer. We haven't really the time to analyze that prayer in all its details. You see the Christadelphian prayer there for the peace of Jerusalem, don't you? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. A very important aspect of his prayer was just exactly that, that he might have the blessing of seeing Jerusalem glorified once again, to go back and to put his feet in the land with his people. And we too pray for the same. But perhaps at times in our prayers, the subject of Jerusalem is not as frequently mentioned as it used to be. 
The background of the hope of Israel to the Christadelphian community is a precious one. The very fact that Brother Thomas began to express the gospel through that term, the hope of Israel, paved and provided a tone for our approach for many, many years in our lectures and the way we addressed one another and the way we expressed the truth. It was the hallmark of the expression of our community, the hope of Israel, to which Paul was bound for a chain. Brothers and sisters, we ought not to lose that perspective because in some quarters it is disintegrating. There are emphases now creeping into some of our writings, emphasis only perhaps, which is overshadowing this very important background, our focus on that land, our focus on that people, our focus on that city, and our prayers constantly, privately, publicly, together as a body, for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on that point, other than to underscore its fundamental importance here as the prayer of a man of God who was wise, and to stress, as we have now, the importance of not losing that perspective. Secondly, other elements of this prayer deserve attention. There is an attitude of mind here. That attitude is described for us, as we've already seen, in verse 3. It's an attitude of humility, an attitude of coming before the Father, and in both mind and in body, prostrating oneself in humility before the throne of grace. That attitude of mind in prayer requires careful preparation. It's not a facade. It's not what some do, someone does in the last few minutes of the day when one is weary and tired and then finally slips off into sleep before the prayer is done. That is the posture of a wise man, of a man who was godly in his approach to prayer. You can't go through that kind of exercise and have that kind of attitude of mind in prayer without being very vigilant, without being awake in what you're doing. Every one of those steps describes an important attitude. It, in fact, is the attitude described to the prophet Joel. I'd like just to turn there because it's not obviously the external that is important in the ashes, in the sackcloth, in the external prostrating of one's body before the throne of grace. It is whether or not that same is found from within. It was no doubt with Daniel. Notice what is said in Joel chapter 2 in this regard. Spells it out very nicely. Verse 12. Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. You see that phrase in verse 13 is key. The tearing of one's garment, putting on ashes and sackcloth, meant nothing, unless that was an expression of an inward prostration, of an inward attitude of humility before the throne of grace. It was a symbol of urgency and dire distress. It was a symbol of mourning. And Daniel is mourning from within. He is agonizing, not only to know and understand the meaning of Jeremiah's prophecies, but he is agonizing over the plight of his nation. And on the basis of the doctrine of the one body, Daniel identifies himself, brothers and sisters, completely with the body of Israel, good and bad. He merges himself in his prayer with the nation. The language is that of we and us and our. Do you notice how many times those expressions are studied through his prayer? We have sinned. We have done this. We have done that. Our fathers, our sin, us. Very important perspective based on his understanding of himself 
and his nation being one body with many members, like the language of the Apostle Paul. And with that perception and understanding, Joel chapter 2 expands that attitude of mind. For in his agony, he agonized for his nation as well as for himself. He rent his garments, but he had rent his heart. He came to offer repentance on behalf of his nation as well as himself. And the objective, the objective in verse 13 of Joel 2, to turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious. In turning themselves, themselves from their plight, from their sins, their disobedience, and turning to the Father, Daniel and Joel remind us that in doing so, we turn to one who is gracious, who is willing and wanting to forgive, who in fact is slow to anger, unlike us, who is of great kindness, which at times is not the characteristic of us, and who is willingly one to repent and forgive, unlike us many of the times in our dealings with one another. We go back to Daniel chapter 9. There is the problem, and there is the attitude of mind before the prayer can be fully analyzed. There is also, as we notice in verse 4, the element of praise. Now, this element of praise is a subject on its own. We will analyze it in a little more detail in one of the other prayers during the week. Sufficient to note in verse 4 that like the Lord's Prayer, the introductory statements of his prayer, which reflect his attitude of mind before the Father, is not only one of confession, but verse 4, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, Dreadful there, by the way, means a sense of awe and wonder. It's a statement of reverence, not of one of complete trepidation and fear. Perhaps we could say, though, a reverential fear, yes, but not one of cowering before the Father. O Lord, the great and dreadful God, one with awe and wonder, deserves respect, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. There is irony in that statement. Do you notice how at the beginning of his prayer he attributes to the Father what he denies to the nation later on in his prayer? For to the Father, he says, thou art the one that keepest thy covenant. Thou art the one who, keep, who keepest thy commandments. But what does he say in verse 5 of the people? What of human beings in verse 6 and 7 and so on down through? What about verse 11? All Israel have transgressed thy law. He says of his people that they have departed from the covenant. But to the Father, he says, thou keepest thy covenant. It's a statement of reverence and respect for the stability, for the eternity of the Father's will. It's a statement and a conviction to do with his loyalty to his people. But his people have not been loyal to him. In contrast, then, through the rest of the prayer, we see how the people have failed to keep the terms of that covenant and how they have turned their back on God, though God has never turned his back on them. And for that, he praises his Father. It is an expression of sacrifice. Under the law of Moses, there was an offering that had to do with praise. There are expressions in the prophets like Hosea, to talk about, let us offer the calves of our lips, as though what comes forth from those lips in praise, in true praise, is a kind of sacrifice from our words and down into our heart as the source. We'll come back to that, but notice how it appears up front in his prayer. It is very important to capture that as part of Daniel's attitude to the Father. And we remind ourselves of its parallel, of course, in that model prayer from the Son. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Praise, reverence, an attitude of mind, 
careful preparation before coming to the Father in prayer. But let's return again to that important theme of we. Like to underscore how often it occurs. Verse 5, and perhaps if you have a pencil, it deserves circling these pronouns. The corporate picture of Daniel and his sinful nation. Verse 5, we have sinned. Verse 6, neither have we hearkened. Verse 8, towards the end of the verse, because we have sinned against thee. Verse 9 at the end, we have rebelled against thee. Verse 11, the last phrase, because we have sinned against him. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us, yet made we not our prayer. Verse 15 at the end again, we have sinned, we again have done wickedly. Verse 20, And whilst I was praying and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people. Now, think about what Daniel is saying and implying by that term, we. Had Daniel really committed those iniquities as the fathers of Israel had before him? Could we say in verse 5 that Daniel had committed iniquity and done wickedly? Had Daniel rebelled in verse 5 against the covenant himself? Had he departed from the precepts and from the judgments? Did he deserve those kind of indictments? If not, why does he say we and not they? Once again, it betrays a godly attitude of mind. It betrays his understanding of how he as any faithful man and, in part, mediator, is to identify himself fully with the sins and the weaknesses, the wounds and the sicknesses of the body. That we is not what we would call the royal we, but in Scripture it is the priest-like we, for that is the attitude of a priest. It is the attitude of one who identifies himself with the people as the people of Israel were to put their hands on the Levites in identification of their role and how the Levite in turn was identifying himself with the people he represented. It is also, of course, seen in the Law of Moses in so many other ways where the priesthood officiates on behalf of and for the people, where in the tabernacle services, like the language in Hebrews, the high priest himself made an offering for the sins both of himself and the people. We know in Scripture, surely, that this isn't something unique to Daniel. That term, we, is found, and that attitude is found in the prayers of all the great men of the Bible. Great now, not so much in the sense of their faith, not so much in the great deeds that they did, like the Samsons and others like him who did mighty acts in war, but greatness in a different sense, in the sense of the priest like we. Let's just sample how Daniel's prayer harmonizes with these sentiments elsewhere. For example, Ezra. This is a pertinent reference because it's at the same time, or at least it's at a time that complements the time of Daniel. It's when the nation has gone back, in part under Ezra's leadership, as a result of their captivity from Babylon, having suffered the plight for the same kind of error. Right, Ezra chapter 9. We'd like just to look at verses 5 to 7. Think of Daniel as you read this description and see the parallels. Verse 5 of of Ezra 9. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose up from my heaviness. Having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto Yahweh my God and said, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for 
Our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespasses grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day, for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the land of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to a spoil, and to confusion of face, as it is this day. There's a great deal that we can see in Ezra's prayer that parallels that of Daniel. Perspective number one, we and our and us. Had Ezra done those things, really? Had he committed iniquity? Had he trespassed? And had his trespasses personally grown up into the heavens? Had he committed the great trespass unto this day in verse 7? Then why does he pray that way? It wasn't a superficial identification with his people. It wasn't false humility or modesty. It was the sincere, genuine outpouring of a man of God who blended himself with the body, who saw himself part of a nation and an ecclesia that needed help. It wasn't the distance of the Pharisee described in the gospel who stood a great while off or a great distance off from the sinner beside him and who prayed with the personal pronoun I, I this and I that, and who said, I thank thee, God, that I am not as other sinners. That's a pharisaical attitude in contrast to these great men who understood what manner of men and women they were. The same sentiment is expressed, of course, by Nehemiah. The same is expressed also by Moses, the great mediator in Exodus 32, where he wishes to have himself blotted out rather than the nation being blotted out. Where Moses steps, as it were, between Israel and God, between them both, and pleads to God that his life might be removed rather than God esponging the nation of Israel. God had told him that he could create a new nation, Moses stepped in between and asked that his life be taken. Had Moses done wrong? Did Moses deserve to be stoned as the nation did, as an adulterous woman? No. But Moses, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah understood this fundamental doctrine in their identification with their brethren and their problems. How about David? 2 Samuel. Chapter 24. At the time of the census, when the nation is being punished, although David, no doubt, could not be absolved from total blame, a careful study, we believe, shows that he was less blameworthy for the plague that broke out in the nation that is sometimes suggested, not absolving David totally, however, but in the midst of this punishment and plague, look at David's petition, verse 17. And remember what you know from your readings, only in the last few weeks, remember what you know about the condition of Israel at the time of David. By Israel, I mean the whole nation. Oh, verse 17. And David spake unto Yahweh when he saw the angel that smote the people, and said, Lo, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. What had the house of the son of Jesse done? It was a godly house. David had misjudged and certainly not to be totally absolved from blame in this circumstance. But what of that statement? These sheep, what have they done? Plenty, David. A study of the time of David through the book of 2 Samuel or 1 Samuel shows us a nation that was still only partly drawn out of the darkness of the time of the judges when every man did that which was right in his own eyes. The reforms of Samuel indicate how twisted and how sick part of that nation was. The response to Israel as they worked for Saul in part 
Their fickleness, the intrigue that encircled David in the time of his rebellion, all showed that the nation as a whole and the leaders were not to be absolved from blame by any means. But David views them as sheep. That's the great shepherd. That's the greatness of David. It's the greatness of Daniel and Moses. He viewed them as sheep. These sheep, what have they done? Well, they had done plenty. But that attitude of mind was that of Daniel in his prayer and the others that we've seen. Look at the Apostle Paul in speaking about Israel, the same object, the same nation as the prayer of Daniel. And see what Paul says in Romans. See how typical this is of the attitude of great shepherds in the Bible. Romans chapter 9. Verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This was a nation that had crucified their Messiah. This is a nation that up to this point, when he penned the epistle to the Romans, had been continually stubborn and hard-hearted. It was a, a nation that really deserved not mercy from the human point of view. They had been given their chance. Messiah had walked in their midst. They had, with cruel hands, crucified him. They had dealt in the same way with the early ecclesia. They had expelled the faithful and continued the work of the Apostle Paul through other bloody hands. Was this a nation that deserved continual sorrow and grief? Was this a nation that deserved to still be called my brethren, although they were still brethren only after the flesh? Was this a nation that you and others and myself at this point in the New Testament times, would have stood up and prayed that you should be accursed? Would you have said that with sincerity? I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ. Would you have put yourself in that spot? Willing to sacrifice yourself for that kind of people? Would you? Most of us would by that point in New Testament times have said, let them be. Disfellowship them, write them off, forget about them. We would have perhaps drawn our coats around us, as it were, and kept our distance, shaken our head in disgust, pointed the finger, and left them. We would have said, patience runs out. But we would have said they've had a chance, many chances. We would have said, perhaps, that we're past 70 times 7, Israel deserves no such concern and such love still. But in the Apostle Paul's bowels, there was such mercy. There still was such yearning, still such concern for the rebellious nation with such a morbid track record, even going right back to the days of Daniel as he could have to our days as we look in this study. That's the mark of a shepherd. That is a true Christadelphian. That is one who truly understands what that name stands for, brethren of Christ. For that's the Christadelphian who doesn't disassociate himself from the body when he looks at it closely and sees the, the, the problems. That's not the attitude that says, I will form a new fellowship. I will split the meeting. I will walk out of the arranging meeting because I can't have it my way. That's not the Christadelphian arranging board that says, because there is sickness in the body, I will disassociate myself from it. I will walk off and form a reclusive, secretive, or form a small group to keep myself from the sins of the people. That mentality is becoming more and more prominent in our community. And only in the last few months on this continent, we have seen a rather sad case of it. As one member of our community I say member, I mean ecclesia, has been afflicted by that very kind of mentality 
in contrast to these examples we're just considering. Don't think, as we should not think, that the attitude of that particular geographic location on this continent is atypical because things said at arranging board meetings and things said in general conversation between Christadelphians often are miles from this attitude. It is too often our reflex in our own thinking, in our own attitude, when we meet problems in our body, to take an attitude that is diametrically opposite from the attitudes expressed by these shepherds of Israel, these true shepherds of Israel. We read them and we admire them and we perhaps applaud their grace and their goodness and the sentiments of their prayers. But that means nothing, brothers and sisters, if in our arranging meetings, in our discussion of the problems in our bodies, our words and thinking, and our actions betray it. It's a fact, as we look at the parables of the Master, in Matthew and Luke especially, that as we analyze them and ask the question, what is being implied by these parables about the unforgiving servant and many others like them, like the Good Samaritan? What's being implied about human nature? Why is the Lord stressing the need to be a Good Samaritan? Why is he stressing the parable of the unforgiving servant? For what is the master saying about human nature? Is he saying that we are naturally more patient than impatient? Is he saying that we are more naturally inclined to forbearance and long-suffering than we are to a lack of it? Those parables are telling us something implicitly about the Lord's concern concerning Christadelphians. He's telling us that patience doesn't naturally come to the body of Christ. He's implying that people are not naturally, as Christadelphians and servants of God, forbearing. He's telling us that we need the exhortation along those lines especially. Now perhaps you're thinking, well, what's the implication here? Is this an exhortation to over-tolerance? Is this an exhortation to turn a blind eye to imperfections and problems in the body? Is this an exhortation for every man to do that which is right in his own eyes? It is not. It is not a matter of tolerance. It's a matter of working with the problem, doing something about it. It's not a matter of writing letters about it. It's not a matter of pointing fingers and phoning people up. It's not a matter of standing in the corner and talking about they the Vancouver Ecclesia, the Scarlet Road Ecclesia, the English Brethren, the Australian Brethren, the Shield, the Logos, the CMPA, and all the other catchphrases which we use in such dialogues. It's not talking about they, with a label on them, with an abstraction. It's talking about those problems, not turning a blind eye to them, as part of we. It's us. It's my body. It's my brother. You see, the they betrays the very opposite disposition of what we see in these prayers. And when we use these fabricated labels for the sake of convenience in our dialogues and in our writings, if that is part of our real thinking inside, and we think of these brethren as chips off of the body, as segregated departments, then without us knowing it, perhaps, we take the mental, internal posture of the man in the parable who says, I thank thee, God, that I am not as other men. The Vancouver Ecclesia, the Scarlet Road Ecclesia, the English brethren, the Australian brethren, the theys. We are not, brothers and sisters, cultivating the disposition of Daniel. It's easy to go through that prayer and be so admiring of the contents of his outpouring. But what does that mean to you and I? What does it mean in terms of the disposition you and I have got to develop in our ecclesial affairs? We are to see the problems. We are not to use rose-colored glasses. We are not to see through darkness. We are to identify the problems of the body. We are to know that they are there. We are to cultivate spiritual Godly discernment to know good and wrong. We are to recognize the disease when it's present and not turn it back from it. But we are to address the disease. 
We are to do something about the sickness. We are to do something about the wounds and the broken body that we might see in our ecclesia and in the community at large. Not to write letters necessarily about it, and not simply at a distance to describe the problem. Now, there's many ways we can do it. Communication with brethren does have its part. Communicating and writing back and forth for a positive purpose has its part, providing our motive is right and our method is right, and providing, of course, that what we are doing for sure is going to pour oil and wine, as the Good Samaritan did, on the afflicted body. Let us measure our methods and evaluate what we're doing and the way we're doing it. Only you know the motives. I can't judge, you can't judge me, of course. So it's not an exhortation to tolerance or to spiritual blindness. It's not a matter of letting anything go in the ecclesia, but it's an exhortation to patience and long-suffering. Turn to the last chapter of Chronicles. This is the meat of Daniel's prayer. If we don't capture all the other details, and we do capture this, we've captured something very tangible. Second Chronicles chapter 36, the very last chapter of the book of Chronicles. And this is not divorced from the study of Daniel. It's pertinent because this is the beginning of the end. Before the people were taken to Babylon, the situation in which Daniel later found himself. When Daniel prayed for the fathers and the forgiveness of his nation, when he admitted their transgressions and their iniquities, he was referring back to this kind of language in 2 Chronicles 36. Here's Nebuchadnezzar coming down in verse 13. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes, means early and often, and sending because he had compassion on his people, and on his dwelling place. How long did God do that, brothers and sisters? For a good number of years, it goes into the hundreds. It was over the course of hundreds of years that God raised up the prophets. The period of the kings and the period of what we call the prophets covers hundreds of years. God was patient. God was long-suffering. But see God as the example? It's not that he turned his back on the sins of his people or tolerated them, but in seeing them, he did his best, God did, to work with the nation. He did something about it. He sent his prophets. He rose them up early and frequently. And he had compassion on his people, his brethren. But, verse 16, the recalcitrant attitude of the hard-hearted nation, but they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of Yahweh arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Margin, notice it. Till there was no healing. Till there was no healing. It's the language of personification. What is implied by that figure of speech, until there was no healing? It implies sickness. How do you describe sickness about a group of people that are a nation? only on the basis of one fundamental Bible doctrine, and that is the, the doctrine of the body. It views the nation of Israel and Judah as a body. And they were sick. And God, by sending his prophets and doing what he could and rising up early and having compassion on them, was really showing the parable of the Good Samaritan. For he poured wine and oil out to them through the words of the prophets he desired to effect a remedy. And after six months, he didn't come to his fellow prophet, to his prophets, and tell them to extinguish the nation. God labored for hundreds of years with a sick body. 
Look at the language of Isaiah. Chapter 1. This is the nation in the days of Hezekiah. How does it describe the nation? The prophet describes it in lurid details. Isaiah chapter 1. Appealing to Israel in verse 2 in the language of Deuteronomy. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children. Look at how God views his people. It's the language of David, isn't it? These poor sheep, what have they done? I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. God's position is that of a father, a parent. They are viewed as children. Then, verse 4, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Now the language of the body that's sick. Verse 5. Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. And the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, nor mollified with ointment. By the way, there's the Old Testament Good Samaritan. That's the language of the Good Samaritan, from which that parable, no doubt, is drawn in part. That is the nation that is sick from head to foot. And yet still, in the days of Hezekiah, God sent his prophets. And it wasn't until the days of Zedekiah in Second Chronicles 36, which we just read, that described the nation as having really now no remedy for their healing. And still many years were to pass from these days. Many years were to pass from these days. And even then, when God took them into captivity with Daniel, there were still Daniels praying for that nation. There is the true shepherd. Despite such a morbid condition, there is the God who is patient with the patient. It is true, I believe, brothers and sisters, that we as Christadelphians are often better surgeons than we are nurses or therapists. It's true. There is a greater inclination at times to use the scapula than to use the ointment and the curing medicine. The one takes patience. The one takes careful and prayerful administration. The one that of patience with the patient requires a willingness to accept sometimes an improvement in the temperature and health of the body that's sick, and sometimes a decline. And at times, the temperature of that body and its fever will fluctuate up and down. There will be advances and there will be regressions. There will be frustrations in working with such a sick body, as there were no doubt for the father. For as Isaiah says elsewhere, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. He sympathized and he identified with his people who were his children. Talked about them as part of his body. So often in our own relationships with one another, we are lacking in that kind of forbearance. We reach for the knife, perhaps a little more impulsively than we do for the balm and the oil and the wine. Figuratively speaking, the one does tax us and requires the attitude of a nurse. The attitude of a nurse. Look at the Apostle Paul in dealing with the first century. For it wasn't long after the inception of the first ecclesias that certain types of sickness did creep in even in the time of the first century. And how does Paul view himself in relationship to this body with all its many needs? Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. This is Daniel. This is the real meaning and practical application of what Daniel prays for. This is the patient shepherd. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For yourselves, brethren, verse 1. Know that our entrance in unto you 
that it was not in vain. Verse 3, for our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. Verse 7, but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. A nurse, the Apostle Paul, a nurse, or perhaps we view him as a father, which he was, but a nurse, it describes Paul's attitude to the sheep, like that of David. It describes the attitude of Daniel, who could not only identify the sicknesses of the body and the problems that were part of that body to which he belonged, but it speaks for action in the ecclesia, in the community, and for the individual that we know of in our ecclesia, in our family, the family of Christ. It speaks for action. It's not a matter of simply sitting back in a tolerant way. He says, we were gentle as a nurse. Well, what does a nurse do? A nurse administers care. A nurse is patient. And a nurse is working with a patient. But she works. She nourishes. She does things positive. She tries to remedy the problem. She doesn't ignore it. She works with it. But she's patient. And that disposition is the disposition of the Apostle Paul, which he needed so very early on when these ecclesias were established. Let's go back to the Gospels. This too is the attitude of Daniel, and it's part and parcel of the problem he dealt with. Matthew chapter 9. Now you'll be surprised to see how closely, how closely this does touch on the time of Daniel. Matthew 9, verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. You would think sometimes by the response of Christadelphians to potential converts that such is not the case. That for some potential converts there is no hope. That for some potential converts we are saying we're only calling the righteous today. We're not calling the sinners. But that's not what the Lord calls through the gospel. He calls the sinners to repentance. And he describes the nation implicitly as needing a physician. He describes the nation implicitly as being sick and not whole. And he quotes his point from Hosea. Back to Hosea. That's the Old Testament context that brings us full circle to Daniel. For the condition that Daniel describes in chapter 9 of his prayer is the condition that is spoken of in Hosea when the prophet, just prior really to Daniel, not too far prior to Daniel, speaking as he was, of course, to the northern nation in part, as well as Judah, spoke and warned the people of. These are some of the words that's referred to in Chronicles, that God rose up prophets early and frequently and sent them to the nation. What Daniel prays about as he looks back into the past of the history of his nation goes back to the times of Hosea. Now, before we look at the direct quotation in context, just go to Hosea 5 and lead towards it. Look at how this harmonizes with the language of Isaiah 1, the healing mentioned for which there was no remedy in 2 Chronicles 36, and the sickness described in Daniel's prayer. Verse 13 of Hosea 5. When Ephraim saw his sickness, and Judah saw his wound, then went Ephraim to the Assyrian and sent to King Jareb. Yet could he not heal you, nor cure you of your wound. That's the language of Chronicles, isn't it? For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion, and as a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear and go away. 
I will take away and none shall rescue him. Verse 15, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction will they seek me early. Then comes the call, verse 1 of chapter 6. Come and let us return unto Yahweh for he hath torn. Remember what Jesus said in quoting Hosea before he said it? They that are whole need not a physician. The nation wasn't whole. They were torn. And he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. What was the language of his quotation to Hosea? I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Isn't that what he said? Now, where did he say that from? Well, look at down at now at verse 6. Here it is in context. This is what Jesus quotes to the nation and to the leaders. Verse 6, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But they, like men, have transgressed the covenant. Language of Daniel. There have they dealt treacherously against me. You see, the Lord quotes in context. By telling them to go back and read what it meaneth from Hosea, doesn't just mean to go back and read Hosea 6 and 6. The context of that whole passage shows the nation sick, torn, broken, afflicted, and in need of healing, in need of mercy. And thus, his rebuke to the Pharisees, who thought that they were above all that, and untouched by it, is ever so pertinent. Finally, let's go back to Daniel and close there. We said that we are not going to analyze, we can't analyze, all of the themes that run through Daniel's prayer. But this surely is one of the most pertinent to our community in these days and to ourselves as disciples. It's comforting to see verse 20 of Daniel 9 as we close, brothers and sisters. Daniel 9, verse 20. Whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, Whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. At the time of the evening sacrifice, when the burnt offering for the evening that was to go right through the hours of darkness was being prepared, head, body, internal organs, washed and cleansed and placed piece by piece, in order, on the altar. And as at the same time, simultaneously, the incense was being burnt for the nation. As that was to be done, and it was it being prepared, although of course not in the days of Daniel, but at that time, Gabriel comes and responds to Daniel's prayer, showing the surety of the answer of prayer. And for a man who sinned, who confessed rather, the sins of his nation, who sought relief for transgression and sin and confessed such depravity of his nation. Who does God send? Which angel of all of them? He sends Gabriel. Why Gabriel? What's Gabriel to tell him? Gabriel is to tell him in verse 24 of the 70 weeks prophecy that would bring Messiah. And in answer to Daniel's prayer in verse 24... What will Messiah do? He will finish the transgression. He will make an end of sins. He will make reconciliation for iniquity. He will bring in everlasting righteousness. Messiah will address the contents of Daniel's prayer. Daniel prayed for the forgiveness of transgression, iniquity, and sin. And Messiah will answer that. He will be the atonement. He will be the answer. And when Messiah is to be born... Of all the angels, whom does God send? Gabriel. How incredibly, divinely appropriate that the one who comes to Joseph and Mary is the one who came to Daniel and gave him the hope for the sins of his people. Here was one in Messiah that was the great shepherd, the one who truly showed patience and who was the great physician that quoted Hosea chapter 6. Let us rejoice, brothers and sisters, in the wisdom 
and in the sureness of God's answer to Daniel's prayer and to ours. For we too must identify with that nation, as Daniel did, and in Messiah, who was cut off, we find the one who is the prince of us, one who is to be the prince of the world, and in whom we have received the atonement.